I'm winning. Well, most of you have probably heard me say before, I am just really enjoying doing the Bible in a year, which is my reading plan for this year. And one of the things I love about it is that the uh, Bible is broken up into segments. There's the Psalms and Proverbs, then the New Testament, then the Old Testament. But between each reading segment, there is a prayer. Because in the commentary, Nikki Gumbel does this beautiful commentary, and he puts a prayer in between each segment. And what it means is that it's not just information, it becomes application. Because there's time for me to just pause and invite God in and pray. And so during the reflections this morning from Ryan and I, there will be some moments along the way where we just pause and we just invite God in and we pray. So the passage that we're looking at today takes place in Jerusalem. The Jews travel to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is a huge festival where the Israelites are celebrating that God has taken them out of slavery in Egypt and and given them freedom in the promised land. And so it's a huge celebration, but due to the nature of the celebration, it's also a time of heightened tension Because the Jews are all coming together in big numbers to celebrate their freedom, but the reality is they're not free anymore. They are now under the control of the Roman government, and so they're oppressed and they're enslaved once more. And aside from the festival, the Passover, the Jewish religious leaders have decided that they want to get rid of Jesus. They want him gone. They want him dead. They don't like the way he's got a big following. They're envious of him. They don't like his teachings. He's turning things upside down. They think he's stirring people up. They're interested in their own power and agenda, and so they miss the fact that he really is who he says he is. And so they arrest Jesus and they give him a death sentence, but they don't actually have the power to carry out the death sentence. So they bring him before Pilate, who is a Roman governor, and Pilate actually has the power to follow through with the sentence. Now it's Pilate's job at the festival to keep the peace. It's his job to make sure there's no political unrest or uprising. And he developed a custom years back that was very clever, where the crowd got to choose one prisoner that was released during the Passover. So it's like Pilate is saying, here I am doing nice things for you. I'm releasing one of your Jewish prisoners. And really it's a way to distract them from the fact that they're still living in oppression. It's a way to placate the crowd. And so basically that is where the text picks up that we're going to look at today. So Matthew 27, 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they'd handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. 
Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they all shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he, he released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So every year at this festival, it's the same. Pilate releases one prisoner chosen by the crowd. But we can see that this year it's really complicated for him because here is Jesus, an innocent man, Jesus who doesn't deserve to be condemned to death. And it's a difficult decision for Pilate because Pilate knows that Jesus is different. He knows he's not a common criminal. He knows that he hasn't done anything wrong. And he knows that the priest handed him over out of envy. So he's wrestling with his conscience. And in Luke's gospel, it explains that Pilate then sends Jesus off to Herod. He's trying to shift the responsibility. And you know, I can really relate to this because I love reneging responsibility. There's always one squeaky wheel in a relationship, you know, when there's an important decision, you're sort of like, oh, you decide, you know. And thankfully, that's me. And you know, I can relate because it's nice when something big goes down to be able to pass the buck which is exactly what Pilate's trying to do in this situation. So he hands Jesus over to Herod. Herod finds no grounds to crucify him, sends Jesus back to Pilate. And so then Pilate says to the priests in Luke 23, I've examined him in your presence. I've found no basis for your charges against him. He's done nothing to deserve death. He speaks to them about it three times, but the crowd keep calling out. They want Barabbas. Crucify Jesus, they're saying. And then it says in Mark 15, he does exactly that. He, he gives the crowd Barabbas and he sends Jesus off to be crucified. And in Mark 15, it says he does it wanting to satisfy the crowd. And there it is. That's why he does it. He's wanting to satisfy the crowd. He knows it's not right. He doesn't want to make the decision, but he wants to satisfy the crowd. He's more interested in his popularity with the crowd. He's more concerned about his popularity than he is about the integrity of his own heart. How often do we care more about our popularity with the crowd than we do about the integrity of our heart? It is so hard to go against the flow. It's hard to live a different way. It's hard to have a different worldview. It is hard to walk away from being popular and first and foremost care about pleasing God, about putting him first. The Bible calls it the narrow road. You know, my whole life unraveled in my teenage years because I didn't have the courage to follow God, to choose God and to choose what I knew to be right over my popularity. But it's not just a teenage problem. We live in a world today where the need for affirmation and the need for popularity is out of control, largely thanks to social media. And I'm not saying we don't need affirmation and love from those that are close to us. Of course we do. We're designed to need community. God designed us that way. But the crowd should not be the voice that we're listening to first. It shouldn't be the loudest voice. And when we look at the passage, Pilate's wife, the one closest to him, actually said, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I've had a dream about him. And Pilate, the, the silly man, does not listen to his wife. I think there's a very big lesson to be learned there. Sam can preach on that another day. <laughs> but Pilate's, Pilate was seduced by the desire for popularity. And how often... Are we seduced by the desire for popularity? 
What's really refreshing is when you get to spend time with someone who just doesn't care about being popular. We had a Mufti Day recently for my three kids, and I remember Mufti Days. It was when I wore my coolest clothes. And, you know, in hindsight, they weren't really cool at all because mum made most of them. And (laughs) she did a really good job. She's great, but they weren't exactly a well-known label. Um, But one of my kids, you know, he didn't want to wear his Adidas shorts. He was really excited about wearing his comfy pants. And it was just so refreshing. He didn't care about the popularity of the crowd. He just wanted to keep his legs warm. And so he did. When we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we are called to go against the popular flow. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're peculiar people. When we truly know who we are in Jesus, we just don't need constant affirmation. It's still nice, but we don't need it to get up in the morning. We don't need to build our foundation of it on it. We don't need it to survive. We don't need everyone we know to love us. That's the truth. We don't need everyone we know to agree with us. God gives us the courage to stand up against injustice, to speak his truth lovingly and gently. And he encourages us to just invite people, invite people to join us along the way. There are many moments in day-to-day life where we can choose to walk away from the popularity of the crowd and we can choose Jesus' way. When the funny work banter turns dodgy, do we laugh the loudest and crack some jokes? Or do we gently try and lift the tone of conversation? When we're in a meeting and it starts to turn unethical, do we just smile and nod or do we stand up and say something courageous and try and gently encourage a different way of doing business? When we're with friends and the conversations turn to gossip, do we just enjoy the drama or do we change the subject and try and build people up? I find this difficult too. I'm preaching to myself here. This is a hard way to live. It's the narrow road, but it's the way Jesus calls us to live. I'm not above the need for popularity or affirmation. I feel it too. But what I've found is the more I've pressed into Jesus, the more I've walked with him, the more I've realized that the integrity of my own heart and pleasing God satisfies the soul like nothing else. So let's pause and pray. Lord, help us choose you. Let us not be like Pilate who chose the crowd, but give us the courage to walk away from the popularity of the crowd and choose you. May you be glorified in our hearts, in our homes, our workplaces, and in our communities. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that amazes me in this passage is how Jesus stays silent even as the lies are poured upon him. And as much as God calls us to use our voice, sometimes he calls us to stay silent, not to justify ourselves, not to argue our point. I'm sure most of us have been through a situation that just seemed really unfair, that seemed like we'd been wrongly accused or misunderstood. And our natural reaction is we want to shout it from the rooftops. You know, you can feel sometimes like sending a bulk email to everyone you know with he said and she said and all the little details because there's there's this overwhelming desire in us to prove our innocence, to make sure people know that we were in the right, that they were in the wrong, that we're the goody, they're the baddie, to point our finger and and to to hope that their reputation is going to be shredded into little pieces. But shredding people into little pieces is not the way of Jesus. Jesus. 
Loving our enemies is the way of Jesus. The fruit of our lives speaks louder than our words. And the Bible tells us that a good tree just cannot produce bad fruit. Jesus may not have argued his case, but the fruit of his ministry still cries out today. So when we are wronged, we need to remember that God sees the heart, that he is our vindicator, he is our judge. We can trust it it to him, we can put it in his hands. And it's such good news for us because it means we can leave it with him. Jesus somehow managed to have this peace and rest as he sits in this horrible place of being wrongly accused. And I think it's because he knows God is his judge, God is his vindicator, and he knows that love wins in the end. We need enormous wisdom from God. When do we say something? And when is it the way of Jesus to stay silent? So let's pause and pray. Lord, thank you that you are our vindicator and our judge. We thank you for Jesus, whose silence reminds us that we can trust in you. Please give us wisdom. Teach us when to speak up and when to stay silent. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is condemned and Barabbas is set free. Now, I've always thought of Barabbas as the big baddie, as a horrible criminal, as, as a, a mean a person that goes out just on killing sprees. And actually, if you see the Passion of the Christ, that's how he's depicted. He's like a deranged serial killer. But I read something recently that completely changed my perspective on Barabbas. In Brian Zahn's Lent devotional, he tells us that Barabbas wasn't a common criminal. He was actually a national hero. He wasn't a serial killer. He was a political prisoner. He was a revolutionary leader. So the Jews are under the Roman occupation, and Barabbas was a man who had enough courage to go and fight for their freedom. He was pushing back against the Romans. And while he led a riot against the Romans, someone was killed. And that's why he's in prison. And so he's actually known to be a hero. Brian Zahn says this, he wasn't the Boston Strangler, he was William Wallace fighting for freedom. There are some ancient New Testament manuscripts that show us his name is actually Jesus Barabbas. So there are two Jesuses that the crowd are choosing between, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth. And Zahn says this, we're given the choice between two versions of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Barabbas? Jesus of Nazareth calls us to the way of peace by loving our enemies and the practice of radical forgiveness. Jesus Barabbas is willing to fight our wars and kill our enemies in the name of freedom. So who are we following? Because if our hearts are crying out for, for Jesus Barabbas, we, we're crying out for one who will crush our enemies. But if our hearts are crying out for Jesus of Nazareth, then we're following the one who says, you got to love your enemies. Then we're following the one whose whole way is love, the way of peaceful resistance. He is the one who took the torture of the cross and didn't respond with violence, but responded with love. So let's pause and pray. Lord, we open our hearts to you. Forgive us for the times we've unwittingly cried out for Barabbas because we've chosen the way of violence. Lead us, Lord, in your ways of peace. Thank you that you didn't retaliate with anger, but instead you poured out your love. Help us to do the same. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ryan.
What a morning, hey? Triple whammy. Terry, Jen, Brian. Wow. You didn't know what you were in for, did you? You came here this morning. All right. Cass, do we have my first slide there? Okay. So this carries right on. It's a beautiful transition. We have in this story a tale of two stories, really, instead of a tale of two cities, a tale of two stories. And I want to present them to you, both with images and some text, and, um, and guide them, guide you through them all together. Um, as you look at this picture, what do you feel? I mean, just first of all, does anybody want to sound a little smart and just tell me what movie are we talking about here? Anybody? Which one? Star Wars A New Hope, okay? The Death Star's just exploded. They're victorious. And look at them. They're all being awarded. There's thousands of people. It's just like, yes! Right? Good moment. Really exciting moment. I just look at this picture and think, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Next picture. Okay, now this is a bit hard. Um, and I just want to give a little intro here about, about what's coming because it's a hard story. Um, we start with a heavy story today with some heavy images. Uh, we start there, but we don't end there. So stick with it. Um, by the end, our goal is to be encouraged and empowered by seeing the world from perhaps a different perspective and a different perspective alongside the Lord of the earth, Jesus of Nazareth. So some hard images to start, but our end goal is, is good, okay? So look at this picture now, and again, just think, what, what do you feel? Probably different emotions, I'm guessing, because I know I do. Um, and if you can go a little deeper, I mean, this is just stickmen. Right? But if you put a face on that person on the ground, someone you know, it's hard to, hard to look at, right? Um, so it's a different story. Can we go to the next slide? So I'm going to read to you three scriptures from the sixth station, the crown of thorns and the, the flogging. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking, sorry, and beating him, they blindfolded him, and they demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Okay, next. Um, from John's Gospel. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe, and they went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They slapped him in the face. Okay, next. This is from Matthew's Gospel. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, which was Pilate's palace, and they gathered the whole company, about 480 soldiers, around him. They stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on his head. Uh, they put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him, and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff from his hand and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and they put his own clothes. And then they led him away to crucify him. Whew. So this is, a, this is a familiar story if you've been around the church for a while, but I want to present it in a way this morning that hopefully... Um, just uh, pushes us out of our familiarity and presents it in a new way. 
trying to see the story. Try to imagine seeing this for the first time and what it would look like, as you've seen here this morning. Um, really, what we're looking at is the story of Jesus' coronation, but it's a backwards coronation. You can see, instead of a crown of gold, he's been given a crown of thorns. Instead of a, a cheering crowd, he's been given a mocking Roman cohort. Uh, instead of a scepter of gold and gems, he's been given a wooden staff that's then used to beat him on the head. And then his throne is coming next. Sam's got the next station, Jesus' throne, you know, the cross. Again, it's a backwards coronation. So what do we do with this? Can we go to the next slide, please? Okay. Just two quick images this is from the Passion of the Christ, just to help you picture. Look, the, you can just picture the scene. And the next. And this is some artwork, random artwork from online. But again, it, it, it pictures the scene. You can just see the jeering and the humiliation. It's hard. It's hard to look at. Okay, next. Right, so I told you this is a tale of two stories. Okay, so we've kind of we've ventured into both. One is quite a hard story, and one is quite an exciting story. Again, a chance to sound smart. Which movie are we looking at here? Yeah, which one? Matrix 2. Neo is there in the middle, and the Smiths are just going everywhere. And this is a story um, that we're familiar with. And so let me just... Let me make my point here. I think one of the reasons that those images in this, these scriptures don't just, they just wrench at our guts is, of course, it's brutal and it's, it's awful. But also, you know, we're following the trajectory of Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the, the Son of Man, and then we're expecting a certain story to play out. And then it's completely turned upside down. I think part of the reason it grates against us is because we're expecting a different story. We're expecting this story, right? Someone starts small builds in strength, develops some special abilities, kicks some butt. Look at him go. Okay, next slide. Just a quick show of hands. Anybody familiar with this story? Come on, anybody? Yeah, Luke at the back, right on. Luke, what is this? That's Dune, yes. So just quick, if you've not read Dune, fabulous story. This, uh, this house, Atreides, is a rising noble house. They take up residence on a harsh desert planet, and it's the source of the most valuable resource in the universe, the spice. And they're seeking to thrive on this new planet and partner with the desert people there, the Fremen. It's a really promising start until their rival family, through horrendous deceit, launches a surprise attack, destroys every vestige of this house. But the teenage son escapes, Paul. He's sheltered in the desert with the desert people. He grows in strength. He attracts the attention of the very empire, the very emperor himself, who then comes to put an end to the trouble. But Paul leads this brilliant strategic assault, riding these desert worms and just demolishes the empire's army and ends the book like the king of the galaxy. It's amazing. Right? And you can feel it like, yes, that's the story I want. Next slide. And again, we've been here. We've been here. Uh, typical story. Death Star is destroyed twice. And we all rejoice. Okay, next. Um, so my question is, what was the story in Jesus' mind? Because that's not, that's not the story we're reading this morning. There's no exploding death stars, no, no kicking butt. What was he thinking? And so I would suggest uh, this comes to mind right away. I'll just read it for you. This is Jesus himself. You've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek... Turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. 
Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I think this, this is what's happening in Jesus' head in this moment. And I, and I would also hearken back to some other familiar words. You may have prayed these yourself. Um, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. God's kingdom has a different story. And who does God uh, use usually to bring about his kingdom? You know, he uses us, his people. So I'm sure Jesus has this. This was Jesus' prayer that he probably has. And he said, your kingdom come, your will be done. God's kingdom is different than the kingdom of this world. Later in that prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our sins. Yes, I'm sure we've prayed this prayer. As we forgive those who sin against us. You can't come with an ungrateful or an unmerciful heart before the Lord. And again, this is Jesus' own prayer. Quick rabbit trail, 21 days of prayer. This is our daily anchor. And so if you, if you prayed this today, that's fabulous. If you haven't, I really encourage you to dive into that prayer. Because in the five-minute option, it's just praying the Lord's Prayer and, and really thinking it through. And it's rich. And it was the story that Jesus had in his own head. Okay, next slide, please. So here's our two stories. What does that mean for us? Let's get practical. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a book that has been mentioned many times in this church, Sacred Fire, and, uh, and share with you some quotes from this book. So what does this mean for us? I'll just read to you what it says here. Um, Until we reach a certain level of maturity, we form community largely around scapegoating. That is, we overcome our differences and tensions by focusing on someone or something about whom or which we share a common distancing, an indignation, ridicule, even anger or jealousy. This is a common worldly story. Next. And this, he continues on. Um, Jesus functions like the sacrificial scapegoat, except he does not take away the tension and the sin of the community by some type of psychological transference or spiritual magic, as did some ancient scapegoats. Rather, Jesus takes away the tensions and sins of the community by absorbing them, carrying them, transforming them, and not giving back in kind. He took in hatred, he held it, transformed it, gave back love. He took in bitterness, he held it, he transformed it, he gave back graciousness. He took in curses, held them, transformed them, gave back blessings. He took in murder, his own murder, he held that, and he transformed even that and gave that back as forgiveness. Okay, next. And so... And this is where the rubber hits the road for us. This is what we're being called to, the same story of, of absorbing, transforming, and not carrying on the evil. But uh, a few caveats with that. One, I'll just read what it says. There's some dangers there, and there's some, in our culture, this can be mis- mistaken. So let me just share this. Um, first, carrying tension for others does not mean putting up with abuse or not confronting pathological or clinical dysfunction. To love someone does not mean accepting abuse in the name of love. For as we've learned from bitter experience, when we absorb abuse, even with the highest religious motives, we do not take away the sin. We enable it. 
Jesus himself confronted dysfunction, even as he gave himself over in love. Sometimes the loving thing to do is not the gentle, accommodating, and long-suffering one. In the face of abuse or clinical dysfunction, Christian discipleship can demand hard confrontation, perhaps even distancing ourselves from the person or persons who are causing that tension. So that's the first caveat. There's a place for this, and it's not just to be walked over as a follower of Christ. We can, we can confront dysfunction. Second, what does it mean to absorb and then transform? This does not mean to absorb evil and then redirect that evil at those closest to us. Right? Maybe you confront someone in your day of work and you absorb the nasty things they said and then you go home and unleash on your husband, wife, or kids. Right? That's not what we're talking about here. And third, then how do we transform these offenses, this evil, inside of us so that we don't pass it on? Well, of course, only God can empower us to do that. And that's where we need to keep our central focus on him. A life rich with practices that draws closer to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And that's a whole other sermon series that we are continuing to preach here at Bay Vineyard. Prayer, silence, solitude, Sabbath, study, scripture, memory. Keeping our eyes on Jesus um, gives us the power to do what he did. So one quick story, and then we'll wrap up here. This is just what this looked like for one individual. Again, from Rawlheiser's book. This is for someone in the civil rights movement. And they said, isn't that dangerous work you're doing? Oh, it's true, he said. The hatred is vicious and the punishment is violent. Have you ever been hurt yourself? Oh, yes. I've been spit upon, beaten with fists, with pipes, with chains, and left a bloody mess. Oh, but you're pretty big. Weren't you able to protect yourself sometimes and fight back? Oh, yes. At first, I did fight back. I made some of them sorry that they had attacked me. But then I realized that by fighting back, I wasn't getting anywhere. The hatred kept coming at me in those fists and those clubs, and it was bouncing right off me back into the air. And it could just continue to spread like electricity. I decided not to fight back. I would let my body absorb the hatred so that some of it would die in my body and not bounce back into the world. I now see that my job in the midst of evil is to make my body a grave for hate. Oh, it's good. So uh, two things to think about. This is just a collection of contentious images. No, there's no comment for me one way or the other. It's just, as you look at that screen, does this elicit any emotions in you? Sorry, Terry. There's pictures of... Um, politicians, uh, vandals, public displays of aggression, and just normal people, some rich people, all sorts of different things you'd see in the news. You know, how do you respond to something that offends you or causes offense or gives a rise inside of you? Uh, Next slide, please. Now, that's an outer circle, people you see in and around your life. But what about those close to you, your friends, your family? Uh, your wife, your husband, your children, your in-laws, your, 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 yeah, your friends, and your friends are your friends. Um, you know, these are the people we see regularly. They're unlikely to beat you with sticks and strike you in the face, uh, hopefully, and whip you and press thorns into your brow. But in a moment of personal offense, it may feel like they have done those things to you. And so we have a choice. Which story are we going to embrace? Are we going to embrace the worldly story? One up? Hit back harder, find the weak spot, conduct and amplify that evil, 
Or are we going to choose the kingdom of God story where we absorb the offense, we transform it by looking to Jesus as our example. We pray for those who offended us. We find a way to bless them, forgive them, at the very least refrain from retaliation. So here we end with a prayer. Uh, a moment of, of reflection. As you picture that image I, I had up of gangsters, politicians, think of your own family, the people in your own circle. Let's pray this together, seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, bring to my mind those who have offended me. Oh, sorry, just in your head. I pray in your head quietly while I pray out loud. Holy Spirit, bring to my mind those who have offended me. Bring to mind those to whom I've reacted in the ways of the world, possibly with curses or retaliation. Just take a moment of silence and let the Holy Spirit bring to you names, faces. Holy Spirit, show me now how to respond to this person by following the model of Jesus of Nazareth to absorb, transform, and return in love. Show us, Holy Spirit, how to respond to this person that you've brought to our mind or these people you've brought to our mind. As you continue to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance on that, perhaps as you go about this, this day, it is a hard teaching. You know, it goes against the very flow of our culture. And I can look at that screen I just showed earlier, and I can say a time where I've said, at least in my heart, if not out loud, curses or, you know, hurtful words about these various people on the screen. I can relate. But Jesus empowers us one person at a time to change. We can't suddenly embrace this kingdom all at once in one go. It takes time. But one person at a time, we can change how we interact through the grace of God. I guess the question is, does this work? I mean, it's, it's, it sounds crazy. So I end with this. There was a time during Jesus' ministry where Satan came to him and said, all this I will give to you, to Jesus. Satan said, if you bow down and worship me. And by this, he meant the kingdoms of the world, as if they were his to give. That was before this day. Jesus' coronation, as we see. After this day, this is what Jesus has to say. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Something has changed, guys, because of the way Jesus handled his coronation. And this can be true for us, too.